Hello and welcome to this special podcast episode featured on both the Weight of Freight and the Crude Report podcast series from Argus Media. My name is Alex Yunovich and I'm the Global Head of Freight at Argus. It is now close to the end of the first quarter of 2021, which is a great time to have a closer look at freight costs in the crude oil market. Right around this time last year, the dirty tanker freight rates went quite crazy and short to historical highs. Back then, they were driven by a perfect storm of factors like the boost in oil production, contango, and floating storage. Then came the virus and the grand collapse in rates. And now, exactly a year later, the freight is still at the bottom after being there for quite a few months now. So is there a respite inside for ship owners? And if there is, where will it actually come from? To answer these questions and more, I am joined here today by Richard Matthews, Head of Research at Gibson Shipbrokers. Richard, thanks for joining. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. Great. So I want to start by giving a little context here. We're recording this on March 17, and according, according to August data, uh, last year, freight on the U.S. Gulf Coast to China VLCC route was around $69.5 per ton, and now it is around $16.5 per ton. That is a 76% drop year on year, and rates have been depressed for months. So how did it get so bad, Richard? Well, I think there's a few key kind of factors to consider. Obviously, the demand drop driven by the pandemic is the primary cause. But as you alluded to earlier, if we go back to this time last year, we had a huge increase in production from the Middle East. We had um, a big rush for floating storage and we had a big collapse in demand. But that collapse in demand was masked or obscured by the floating storage that we had. So we had vessels tied up for long periods of time storing oil. But of course, as we've gone through last year, we've seen OPEC controlling production, instigating large production cuts. And of course, as demand has slowly started to recover, we've seen vessels coming back from floating storage. But of course, as these vessels come back from floating storage, because demand is still weak and because supply has been constrained, there's not enough cargoes for these vessels. So in short then, uh, considering that we had a long uh, period now of low rates, should we expect anything near the same spike that we had last spring in this spring? Unfortunately not. Um, Something exceptional would have to happen to see that. And right now we see very good discipline within OPEC and of course we have good vessel availability. So it looks unlikely, um, but tanker owners are always optimists. Yeah, the internal optimist one, I'd say. Uh, so let's take uh, talk about OPEC Plus then for a second, since you mentioned them. They threw quite a bit of a curveball earlier this month. They surprised, I think, quite a few people, uh, especially analysts, by sticking with the uh, production cuts. What do you think is the actual impact of that on the tanker market? And we're talking both short term and long term. Sure. I mean, in the short term, there's no spin you can put on it it's negative. Of course, we were hoping to start seeing flows increasing, and that would, of course, increase demand within the tanker sector. We were never expecting a huge change, but, you know, we had hoped for something. So in the short term, undoubtedly negative. Um, But as you just said, you know, tanker owners are the eternal optimists. And when we look at this and we try and take a positive spin from it, we see it in the fact that what OPEC are doing right now is going to draw down inventories significantly 
And that means when demand does come back and when supply does come back into the market, we're likely to see a stronger uptick in seaborne trade. So it would cover both the normal chartering and also filling up the uh, stocks again? Yes. Okay, so um, if we are uh, talking, uh, talking Middle East or exports from the Middle East, uh, it's quite a popular opinion and I think quite a correct one that uh, Middle East exports to places like like India, even places like China, is not actually the best routes when it comes to torn mile demand. Right. So uh, just because they're short and the turnout demand is always uh, there is always an element of distance in that. So in this current situ- situation where we have maybe less crude coming out of the Middle East, will we see more of the advent of uh, routes uh, on long, longer haul trades from the US maybe or other places going to uh, to the east? Well, we'd like to think so, um, but I think we have to sort of manage our expectations a little bit here. You know, if we look at where the growth in crude supply is likely to come from over the next 12 months, primarily that's going to be OPEC and OPEC plus countries. But the vast majority of that is likely to come from the Middle East. And of course, as you just said, Middle East crude going into India isn't particularly brilliant for ton mile demand. Going to China is, um, is, you know, it's okay. It's a sort of medium haul route. And generally speaking, that will have a good effect. But what we really like to see in a tanker market is a big increase in crude coming out of the US or coming out of um, the Caribbean and Latin America, going to India and hopefully going to China, because, of course, that's the biggest impact on ton mile demand. But I think realistically, over the next year, We're not expecting to see much growth at all coming out of the US unless prices continue to rise and we see more wells being drilled. And we generally assume there'll be no change in countries like Venezuela, again, unless something changes on the sanctions side. So really is the Middle East that we'll primarily be looking at. I think one thing to add to that is that in the Indian government is looking to diversify crude supply away from the Middle East. And you may see Indian buyers taking a bit more US where they can, bit more West Africa and possibly a bit more from Northern Europe and the FSU. Will this make a dent in the rates? Will it uh, hold them up or is not enough uh, demand coming from India diversification? It's, it's, increase? it's not enough on its own. It will help, um, but certainly we need to see an increase in supply from the Middle East coming as well, albeit that going to the Far East rather than, let's say, India. Fair enough. So in this case, what are the realistic scenarios in the next 12 months that could actually boost on mild demand? Well, firstly, we've got to see um, the demand coming back and we've got to see the oil supply coming back. So, you know, in our expectations, we're relatively um, we call it realistic. Some people call us <laughs> pessimistic, but that's really just a matter of opinion. Um, <laughs> but in our view, um, we've got to see OPEC easing their supply cuts. The next meeting is in April. We'd like to think we'll start seeing some crude coming back into the market from then. But of course, for that to happen, demand has to meet that. And of course, the pandemic is not over yet, particularly in Europe right now. So for us, um, we really need to see OPEC having the confidence to increase supply into the market. We need to see demand continuing to grow and an effective vaccination program to help that. Um, But most of that will come from the Middle East and, of course, the other OPEC plus countries contributing as well. We're hopeful um, for seeing something like Venezuela, but we think that will be um, quite a way away, perhaps not even next year, depending on how the politics go. So 
yeah, it's um, it's not easy to say exactly where it'll come from, but OPEC Middle East is really the where the main expectation is. Makes sense. Okay, let's uh, talk about the other side of this uh, for a second. Uh, where there's demand, there is always um, the supply. And the supply is always represented by the fleet, uh, the amount of vessels available uh, in shipping. Uh, it goes for tankers too. And what we've seen recently, and this is something which a lot of people in the shipowning community are putting their hopes on, is the slowdown in the uh, new building uh, uh, growth. So there are less new ships be, uh, being ordered, and that has been going for a while now. And I was wondering if it, that is still the trend, first first of all, and what is it caused by, you think? Sure. Well, there's a few key things to address there. Um, firstly, we have seen a slowdown over the past few years in new building orders. A large part of that has been driven by um, the sort of uncertainty as to what to invest in. So obviously, we know the world is moving towards a greener future. Shipping is not immune to that. And ship owners are uncertain whether it's the right thing to invest in a conventional tanker or go for something like LNG. Um, which still has its own potential climate impacts as well. So that's probably been the biggest barrier um, to investment at the moment. But actually, you know, I had a look at the number of VLCCs that have been ordered this year. Um, so in effectively in the first quarter, and we're already at around about 22 VLCCs being ordered in one quarter alone, nice. which is actually a very high number. We'd normally um, expect to see anywhere between, say, high 30s and maybe in extreme year high 50s being ordered so we're almost halfway to those kind of numbers right now so it has been actually a relatively busy start to the year for ordering particularly on the vlccs although 10 of those ships alone um, are for one charterer in other words shell yeah and are people uh since we're talking about it i guess i know the answer already but the are, are people uh mostly uh investing in dual fueled engines when they, when they order new buildings oil and jeep powered vessels you'd still see the majority as being um conventional fuel mm. but um if you look at the order book delivering so if you order a ship today you're really looking at 2023 delivery yeah um, and if you look at the deliveries coming in 2023 in some cases on some sectors more than half the fleet is at the moment dual fuel or at least some form of dual fuel ready so mm. the trend is definitely going that way but there's still a large section of the industry who doesn't have the confidence um, or perhaps the expertise in some of these new fuels to make a decision on what to invest in. And that has been a lot, and that's the, that's the other part of it, and probably is connected to that confidence in the new solutions, among other things. But there has been increased activity in the second-hand market as well. Uh, how, what do you attribute this to? Again, the lack of confidence in the new building and new solutions, the prices for assets or something else? Well, the second-hand market, again, is is a very interesting one. Um, you know, there's you have to look at it in two different ways. So you look at the modern tonnage, um, which is being sold to, let's say, first-class counterparties and will trade in conventional trade. Um, and modern vessels, which have very good fuel consumptions, perhaps also have a scrubber, are, of course, in high demand. You then have the other section of the market where you're talking about VLCCs or, you know, Suez Maxes, Afro Maxes, which are over 20 years of age or approaching 20 years of age and should really be scrapped. But there's also a market for these vessels at the moment for um, trade, which we would call or suspect is illicit. So whether this is sailing to Venezuela, whether this is sailing to Iran, 
Um, there's definitely been an increase in vessels that have been sold seemingly legitimately, mm. perhaps then through several intermediaries um, end up trading in sanctioned business. And that actually at the moment um, is having an impact on scrapping because these buyers are willing mm. to pay two or three million dollars above scrap value um, for old ships because they know they can trade them in these illicit trades and likely make very good returns. Interesting. So that's one of those cases where the ship suddenly uh, drops off the AAS tracking when uh, arriving to certain places in the world, right? Yeah, I mean, we looked at a vessel yesterday and it was ballasting from Fajira south down the Atlantic. And as it rounded the Cape of Good Hope, pointing towards the Americas, AIS turned off. Um, and it doesn't, <laughs> well, it doesn't take a detective to have a good guess at where that vessel's probably going. Fair enough. Okay, uh, you mentioned you mentioned scrapping uh, again. A lot of the hopes uh, of the decrease of supply go into scrapping. Are we going to see an increase in it in the next 12 to, to 24 months? Well, we hope so. Um, we think that scrapping this year is underperforming and scrapping should be higher. Some of the reasons behind that are what I've just mentioned. You know, companies mm. willing to pay a premium to scrap value for older vessels, um, but. That's probably only a finite market. Um, we think it's going to be harder to sell vessels into those trade and owners are having to become more and more diligent in who they sell their vessels to. But if you look at the drivers of scrapping, um, they're all relatively supportive right now. So we have around about 370 tankers, which are mm. over 20 years of age. That's not an automatic scrapping criteria, but as vessels get past that age, the, the probability of scrapping increases. We have very high bunker prices now as well, which of course, again, makes an older vessel with high fuel consumption less economic. Mm -hmm. We talked about stricter regulation, which is coming into play over the coming years. And of course, freight rates are still very weak and likely to remain challenging for this year. So all of that points towards scrapping being much higher. And as long as we see the disappearance or the reduction in vessels being sold for, let's say, potentially illicit business, yeah. then scrapping will pick up as the year progresses. And that will help moderate fleet growth um, to lower levels, we think, for the next um, two, perhaps three years. Makes sense. Let's um, go back to the rates for a second and specific earnings. Uh, it's been said quite quite a bit now in the market that the earnings are quite terrible for dirty tankers, specifically the LCCs, uh, for example. And a lot of talk uh, about the negative earnings specifically. Could you elaborate a bit more for the audience what uh, negative earnings actually entail? Does it mean that the ship is actually paying for transporting the cargoes? Is it just that it can't cover its operating costs on the voyage? Or does it mean that it's um, not covering the total costs, inclu including um, uh, capital costs, for instance? Sure. When people so, say negative earnings, what is it? Yeah, so exactly. So it's really associated with the voyage rather than the entire costs of the vessel. So right now, um, a VLCC is earning approximately negative $5,000 per day for a non-scrubber vessel uh, of average fuel consumption. And what that effectively means that the costs of doing that voyage, all of the fuel for the ballast and the laden leg, port costs and any other costs that may be incurred are less than what the owner is effectively being paid to do that voyage. So you could argue that the vessel is paying to do the voyage. Um, it's not quite that way, but ultimately when they do do that. So if a VLCC is said to be earning negative $5,000 per day, that's just on the cost of the voyages. What you have to take account is that 
there's capex involved for paying for the vessel and there's operating expenses as well and again those capex and operating expenses could amount to 25 to 35000 dollars per day depending on various factors such as how much the ship cost so let's just say that the vessel's break even capex opex is $30,000 per day if you're earning negative $5,000 per day then you're effectively losing $35,000 per day so it's very very painful right now um, mm. and of course it's worth bearing in mind that some companies have 10 20 30 even more of these vessels that could all be lo- losing money at those kind of multiples um, so here's a question uh, both you and I know the answer to that but uh, again to to elaborate a bit more why don't you just idle the vessel lay it up if you know you're losing money for moving cargoes what's the point of moving well we will see um, vessels doing that and we're hearing increased talk in the market right now vessels refusing to move um, at such rates but at the same time there's other practical considerations you know if you sit the vessel and you don't do any business for a period of time you might lose some approvals um, in the oil market for oil majors um, and again you may want to reposition the vessel anyway so you may want to take a cargo out of a region which is not paying good money at the moment and go into a region which perhaps is paying and if it covers some of the costs for doing that exactly yes Mm -hmm. okay so all considered uh, considering that we still have a recovering demand uh going considering we're still uncertain on tonnage it seems when can we expect tankers to actually enter a period of sustained growth? Because what we've seen recently and what we've talked about as well is more of the supply squeezes and spikes, which are short term. When are we going to enter in how many months uh, or years uh, the period where the freight rates are likely to be supported long term? Sure. Well, a really simplistic way to look at it is say, well, where were we back in 2019? how big was the fleet back in 2019 and what was the level of ton mile demand that we were looking at and the reality is um, we're not going to get back to the same supply demand balance until at some point in 2022 at best you know we're not expecting world oil demand to recover fully until 2022 at some point and of course as we just talked about during this podcast um, you know the ton mile effect will likely be a little bit less because we're going to see less growth coming out of the US, for example. So earliest, we think sustainable um, growth in rates from 2022 onwards. I think as we get towards the end of this year, um, around about Q4, we're expecting to see most sectors generating returns or earnings, which are around about or above those break-even levels. But again, we talked about scrapping, we talked about ordering activity, and we do estimate that fleet growth will remain low and we'll see fleet growth around about one to two percent over the next two to three years. So once we get back above 2019 demand levels, we should be in a position where we can see two, maybe if we're lucky, three years of sustainable freight rates. Mm-hmm. A quick question just to round this up and hopefully a short reply as well is since you mentioned there were quite a few VLCCs already ordered in in the first quarter and we both know that sometimes ship owners again being eternal optimists knowing that the market can only go up or is likely to go up in say two or three years can order more vessels and it takes a few years to build them so won't all this new supply arrive just in time when this demand recovers and it should be sustainable growth just in time to put it back down 
it's always the way the industry is incredibly cyclical um, there will always be some dislocation between when say new build vessels arrive and when the demand is but that's why we say look we only really see two or three years of sustainable freight rates because anything longer than that new build vessels will arrive and probably exceed the amount of demand that we see in the market makes sense well lovely i think we can run this off here and thanks for sharing your expertise with us richard that was very informative as always and thanks to everyone who listened if you would like to get more insight into shipping markets do check out the argus freight service which includes prices news analysis and a bunch of special bonus content also for more free content like this visit the weight of freight page on argusmedia.com where we publish regular podcasts blogs and webinars till next time and keep safe everyone